At least to begin with, we're going to be passing through Deuteronomy 25. So uh, if you want to head start, you might want to turn there now. Uh, Deuteronomy 25. As this morning we continue our study of, here we go, soteriology. Simply means the doctrine of salvation. And especially we are tracing out the ordo salutis, which simply means the logical order of those various facets of God's saving work, uh, Bible words describing our salvation, like, for instance, beginning with election, how it speaks of God's choice of specific sinners for salvation before the foundation of the world. And then you've got calling or effectual calling, that is God's invitation to sinners in the gospel. Ah, but it's not simply an external call. It's that call that then powerfully draws and actually joins those sinners to Christ. Then you've got regeneration, that radical transformation in the core of man's being. It's called a new birth. It's likened to a resurrection or a new creation because it's especially by the mighty power of God where he does that work by his spirit in the uh, inner man. And then there's conversion. The word conversion means turning. Uh, it's the response to Christ and his gospel and faith and repentance, but this also by the enabling of God himself. It's his work. Uh, we do it. We do the converting, the believing, and the repenting, but it's by his enabling. Then we looked at redemption, uh, that is deliverance from a multifaceted bondage by the payment of a great price. Christ gave himself to redeem us, again, from a multifaceted bondage. And then last Lord's Day, we looked at that word reconciliation which, as you would understand, it means a state of alienation, even hostility, is exchanged for one of peace and favor, and even, mind you, mutual delight. And we noted last week there are these two sides to reconciliation. You've got our native state, carnal mind, hostile against God. Oh, no more. Uh, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit dwells in you, indeed he does so as the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, not hostile, but rather that sense of, of filial relationship of our love for God, his for us. But the bigger issue was not simply our posture toward God in our native state, but rather God's posture, if you please, toward us. Uh, how he is angry with the wicked every day, or his face is against the evildoer, Psalm 34, 16. Or even that statement that so speaks of God's benevolent love to his creatures, uh, when our Lord's telling us to love our enemies, because look what the Father does, how he causes the sun to rise, the rain to fall on the evil as well as upon the good. And this is the example of God loving his enemies, not simply those who regard him as an enemy, but those whom he regards as an enemy, man in sin. And yet that benevolent love, and even beyond that, Romans 5.10, when we were enemies, that is God's regard for us as enemies, even so we were reconciled to God to the death of of his son. So God did this great work. Uh, he took the initiative, removed the sin obstacle, satisfying the demands of justice for our sin, and even making the ungodly, that is sinners like us, perfectly acceptable in his sight. Well, that's what we saw in reconciliation. But how did he do this? Well, that's the point of that uh, next word in the order of salvation, that to which we now come justification. And more particular, of course, we're talking about justification by faith alone in Christ 
alone. Uh, we look at it this morning, again, this afternoon, and God willing, uh, next Lord's Day as well. And we look at it now, in this hour, under three heads, the meaning, the necessity, and the method of justification. So, firstly then, justification, its meaning. And it doesn't necessarily sound like it in English, but it is so in Greek. Uh, it's from the same family of words as righteous and righteousness. So, for instance, when Paul says in Romans 4 or 5 that God justifies the ungodly and then right away talks about faith being accounted for righteousness, well, clearly he's talking about one of the same thing, justifying, faith accounted as righteous. Or when in Romans 5, 18, he speaks of the righteousness of one, that is Christ, and the justification of all, well, clearly these things are related. It's the same word family. Justification has to do with with righteousness. Further, the word justify, it's a forensic or a, a legal term. You know, it's a language that would be used, say, with reference to a court of law, and especially with regard to one's relation to the law, whether guilty or innocent. And I've asked you to open your Bibles to uh, Leviticus, I mean, sorry, Deuteronomy 25, because we see this even in the Old Testament. And so verse 1 of that chapter, Deuteronomy 25, 1, if there is a dispute between men, and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Well, we don't need to read any further as to what they are to do. But just notice this. It has to do with the recognition of what is true, and a pronouncement or declaration. Here you've got this guy, and he's... The righteous, so he's justified. You got this other guy, he's the wicked, and he's condemned. Now, when it says he justifies the righteous, it doesn't mean that, well, this verdict caused him to be righteous. It simply recognized what he was with reference to the law. It declared what he was. Now, we see this, again, demonstrated very clearly in Proverbs chapter 17, so I would ask you to come there. But just, again, understand that the word justify, it's a verdict made by a judge, something that is declared. And so Proverbs uh, chapter 17 here, it's used a uh, slightly different angle, but it's the same uh, concept that it's uh, illustrated. Verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now again, you got the picture of uh, standing before a judge. And a sentence is being pronounced. Now, in this case, it's a wrong sentence. It's an undeserved sentence. Uh, you've got this guy, he's wicked. He should be condemned. But no, 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 he's, he's justified. This other guy, he's actually uh, righteous. But no, he's being condemned. Well, that is, we're told, an abomination. That's utterly detestable to the God of justice, that it should be so. Uh, because it's to be according to truth. Uh, clearly, it illustrates this is a verdict. It does, it's not a personal change. I mean, when it says he justifies the wicked, well, that'd be a good thing if he worked a personal change in this wicked man, and he's no longer wicked, but now he's righteous. And all, but that's obviously not the meaning of the point, uh, the meaning of the word. That's not the point being established. The wicked, no, he is wicked. And yet he's being declared righteous. Made no change in him, but it's a declaration, albeit one that was not at all Warranted. So again, it's pronouncement. 
justifying. It's a declaration that's supposed to be based on the facts, declaring a person to be righteous in relation to the law because he truly is. And just as we saw in Deuteronomy 25, here in Proverbs 17, it shows that justifying is the opposite of condemning. Right? Justifying the righteous, condemning the wicked there in Deuteronomy. Well, here you, you got the other. To, to condemn, obviously, it means in this case to declare the guy guilty and then to treat him accordingly, like a condemned criminal. Right? Uh, he's been found guilty of, say, murder. He's been sentenced for just punishment. Now he's awaiting execution. He's been uh, uh, condemned. Well, to justify, clearly, that's the opposite of that. It means to declare not guilty, or if you please, righteous, and then to treat that person accordingly. That is to say, as one who has no charge, just charge, against him, and therefore having all the privileges of a law-abiding citizen. It's pronounced, it's declared. Well, that was the established uh, idea of the whole concept of justification, even from the Old Testament, but so too when we come to the New. I would ask you to come now to Romans chapter 8, and verses 33 and 34 in particular, where here's a text that uses this word with reference to our salvation. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The idea of pleading his own blood and righteousness. Well, the picture painted again is that of a court. Here we are, we're standing before the judge. Charges are brought. Ah, but no charge against believers can be made to stick. Because God is not only the judge, he is also the one who justifies. He is the judge who pronounces the verdict. Righteous. Which, as you can see from verse 34, who is he who condemns? Being justified is the opposite from being condemned. Uh, he regards his people as righteous in their relationship to the law. And, of course, this reflects what was already said back in verse 1 of this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No, they are justified. In fact, such is the case, not only is there no condemnation, but they are joint heirs together with Christ and will be glorified together with him. So the point is justification means declaring one righteous and thereafter treating that one as truly righteous. Now I'm going to leave aside for now exactly uh, what that entails and, and how it works uh, because we need to consider, okay, but why justification? Justification is necessity. Why is this included in that large salvation that Christ bestows upon sinners like us? You know, every facet of our salvation, we've seen that thus far, haven't we, in the Ordo Salutis, that every facet reflects some need that was ours because of sin, because of our uh, state in sin. For instance, regeneration, or being made alive spiritually, because by nature we were dead in trespasses and sins. 
And so, too, what we looked at by uh, redemption, that means deliverance by payment of a price. Well, we were held in a multifaceted bondage, and Christ paid the price, his own blood, to deliver us from all of that bondage. So each facet of salvation, it, it speaks of some great need in the sinner. Okay, well, what was it about our native condition that necessitated justification, that is to be declared righteous? Well, obviously, it's because by nature, human beings are anything but righteous. We're sinners by birth and by practice. You know how in Romans, which deals especially with this glorious truth of justification, Paul spends the first, most of the first three chapters demonstrating this. Uh, here are the Gentiles, and here then are even uh, the moral Gentiles, and here are, are Jews. And you look at them all, and he points out there's none righteous. No, not one, or as he says in verse 23, uh, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. There's no difference. Jew, Gentile, we're all sinners by birth by practice, and then Paul, having said that, well, he uh, then makes it clear that all humanity stands condemned before God. Notice in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. Well, here's a summation of what he said during, in, in much of these three chapters. Romans chapter 3, and we'll take up our reading at verse 19. Now we know that Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. He's just got through quoting from the Old Testament showing we're all sinners, none righteous, etc. Look, every mouth stopped, we're all guilty. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It shows that we've done wrong. It condemns us. In fact, he's already said back in the beginning of this section, uh, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He writes to the Ephesians and says, you know, by nature we're children of wrath. That is, we're fallen from birth, fallen in Adam, and then we say amen by our own practice. So here we are standing before a righteous judge in our sin, in our unrighteousness, and therefore our eternal condemnation was sure. Psalm 1.5, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Or Psalm 130, if you mark iniquities, who can stand? Nobody, nobody. All the world guilty before God. Well, since we're all condemned sinners by nature, in order to escape punishment, well, for one thing, it means we, we must have all of our sins, all of our sins forgiven. But more is, then that is actually needed if we would be right with God, if we'd be fully and forever accepted by a righteous God. Remember how Habakkuk says, God's a pure eyes are to behold evil. The idea is God cannot look upon sin with approval or even indifference. He's a holy God, a pure God. And righteousness uh, uh, can have nothing to do with unrighteousness. You remember how Paul develops that over in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. What fellowship is there between righteousness and unrighteousness? There's boy, none. None. They cannot peacefully coexist here. Or Psalm 5, 4, evil cannot dwell with him. Not ever. Or uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, yeah, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They can't. 
point is, that means even forgiveness is not enough to be fully and forever right with God or uh, for, uh, to be fully acceptable to him. Because even if all of our past sins are thoroughly pardoned, that doesn't make us righteous. That just makes us forgiven sinners. And as such, if that's all we are, forgiven sinners, will we not come under condemnation again the next time we sin? Uh, even, you know, when we're doing our best, well, we sin. Well, what happens until we're forgiven again? Does that not bring us in, would that not bring us again under that condemnation? In other words, our standing would be very short-lived at best. Our standing before God would not be based on a, if it's just forgiveness, would not be based on a verdict that is final and unchangeable. And therefore, no real and permanent relationship of peace with a righteous God. For that, we must be the righteous. The point is, there's a big difference between being forgiven and being righteous. And there's also a big difference between not doing wrong and always doing that which is right, which is really the idea of righteous. Have you ever heard justification uh, or the word justified uh, defined as just as if I'd never sinned? Well, that's kind of cute. Maybe it's a handy memory device. And there's an element of truth in it. The problem is it doesn't go far enough. There's a sense in which that's simply moral neutrality. I've not done wrong. Whereas justification, righteousness, means always and only doing that which is perfectly right before the law or in the eyes of God. A relationship of peace, a fellowship with God, of inheriting the kingdom, for that one must be righteous. And that's the necessity of justification. To be declared and then forever treated as perfectly righteous in God's sight. And therefore, being legitimate recipients of all the privileges and all the rewards of righteousness. Even unchangeably accepted as righteous. That's justification. Oh, but wait a minute. How can that be? I mean, Proverbs 17, 15, to declare the wicked righteous is an abomination to God. For God to declare anyone to be righteous, well, it has to be based on what is true. Right? That's the whole problem there with Proverbs 17, 15. It's not true. You're saying the wicked is righteous when he's not. You're saying the righteous is wicked and he's not. No, for God to, to make that declaration, it has to be based on true. But look at me. I'm a sinner. None righteous. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own ways. Even my very best deeds, my righteousnesses, are as filthy rags in his sight. Isaiah 64. Job asked the question in Job 9 and verse 2. Actually, Bildad also asked that question. How can a man be righteous before God? And the implied answer is, yeah, in himself, himself, he can't. Okay, but how then can God pronounce and treat sinners like us as righteous? If none can be righteous in his sight. And isn't that unjust? Wouldn't that be a, a, an abomination? Uh, like a lie? Saying they're righteous when they're not? Since our lives clearly show that... Uh, we're not 
perfect according to his law. Well, that brings us to the third heading then. Justification, its method, or to use the language of Romans 4, 5, how it is that God justifies the ungodly. And to appreciate that, well, we must understand that the law has placed us under two, it's called liabilities, but you can think of them as two responsibilities. The first is perfect obedience to all that God's law, that God himself requires. Uh, that's what is required in order to be righteous. Perfect conformity to the law of God, in deed, in word, in thought, in motive, in desire. Righteous. Have you done that? Well, we haven't. Well, having failed there, then we are all under liability or have the responsibility or another demand of the law. That is, for breaking it, we are liable to punishment. The penalty that justice requires for breaking God's law. Now, hopefully, um, we understand God's method for satisfying the law's very righteous demand for a full penalty for violations of it. That is, God has provided that perfect substitute who would satisfy all that justice required by way of punishment for our sin. Um, how we, like sheep, gone astray and Jehovah laid on him the iniquities of us all. And it pleased Jehovah to bruise or to crush him, as Isaiah 53. And so Paul says, that it was written in scripture, that Christ died for our sins. Oh, it's all there in the Old Testament, not just Isaiah 53, but elsewhere. And therefore we read in 1 Peter 3 that the just one, suffered in place of the unjust that he might bring us to God. How he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Or we saw it in recent studies of, of redemption, how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. That is to say, he experienced that which justice required. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19, how God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging them with their sins, not imputing their sins to them. Well, then how were they paid for? He imputed them, he charged them to Christ when the one who knew no sin was made sin. That is, he was regarded and treated as sin itself. As a perfect substitute, there, Romans 8, 3, God condemned sin. And they're like, what sin deserved, there it got for all who had put their trust in Christ. So he satisfied the law's demand for punishment, thereby securing a righteous pardon for our sin. And that's glorious truth. Uh, no more curse, no more wrath. In fact, uh, when it speaks of God forgiving the sins of his people, is he's just, for, it's righteous now for him to forgive. And Paul develops this idea of justice being satisfied, of righteousness being uh, 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 satisfied uh, in Romans chapter 3 come there Romans 3 verses 25 and 26 let me back up to verse 24 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation as an atoning sacrifice to make payment for sin by his blood through faith 
to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over sins that were previously committed. He hadn't immediately jumped on those sins and condemned the sinner upon every commission of sin. No. He'd passed over them. He'd been forbearing. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. He sent Christ as a propitiation to demonstrate his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You ever wonder, what's this all about? Just and justifier. What's that all about? Well, it's that God should be righteous while he's declaring righteous those who believe on Christ. That is, by punishing sin in a perfect substitute, in our representative, God can now in a righteous way, justly show mercy to sinners like us. The just demands of the law for punishment? Oh, he's saying that was fully satisfied. Uh, Christ bore it. He exhausted the wrath of God in the place of those who would trust in him. And therefore, God can be righteous while declaring the ungodly righteous. Romans 4, 5 justifies the ungodly because the penalty is paid. But as we've already seen, there is this big difference between being forgiven and being righteous. So how could our other responsibility under the law of God ever be met? That is absolute and perfect obedience in word and thought and deed and motive and so forth. How could we ever hope to have a perfect righteousness before a holy God to perfectly keep his law? Well, it's the same answer as to how could the punishment be paid by a perfect substitute. That the Lord Jesus not only died for sinners, he lived for them. And this is what Paul says at the very outset of this section, back up to verse 20, again of Romans 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And yet, what a wonderful word is this, but... But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, Jew or Gentile, all are sinners. The righteousness of God here is a righteousness that God has provided and now bestows. It reflects back on what he had said and uh, what Paul had said in verses 16 and 17, how this gospel uh, is the power of God of salvation, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as written the just shall live by faith. Perhaps you remember how Martin Luther hated this whole concept of the righteousness of God. Because he thought in terms it was the righteousness that God re required, that God demanded. And I, I can't have this righteousness. And, and it just uh, so burdened him. And then it was that the Lord made it clear to him in his own study of the book of Romans. That it's not the righteousness that we come up with. It's the righteousness that God provides. So coming back here to Romans 3, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the idea, witnessed by the law and the prophets, well, that is to say, even from of old, you've got uh, the whole Old Testament pointing ahead to the coming of the Messiah, uh, Christ's coming. 
and a true man, but yet God manifest in the flesh, truly living that uh, holy, that perfect life. And that again, not only to be a substitute bearing the punishment for sin, but to work out a perfect righteousness for those who would trust in him. It's that righteousness that is imputed, that is credited to our account, all of those who have faith in Jesus. So Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, it's of God that you are in Christ who has made to us wisdom, but not just that, righteousness. He goes on to talk about also sanctification and redemption. But the, uh, Christ has made to us righteousness, even as it foretold the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23. He's Jehovah our righteousness. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, the, the one who knew no sin was made sin, that we should be made the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? Christ was regarded and treated as sin itself, so that we should be regarded and treated as the very righteousness of God. That our sins being charged to him, his righteousness being charged to us. Or notice how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> He's here talked about how he was in the past. Now, uh, outwardly, uh, he was blameless, verse 6. So clean he squeaked. And yet he says, you know, I count all that rubbish. That's, as a Jew, that's meant everything to me. Look how, how my life is. Aren't I wonderful? Uh, but wait a minute, I come to realize uh, that's nothing. I count it as rubbish uh, uh, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. It's God freely bestowing Christ's righteousness to believing sinners. The perfect substitute who not only died in the place of sinners, but lived in the place of sinners. So the Lord Jesus, he secured then this perfect righteousness for his people by satisfying both demands of the law. You ever heard the language theologians will use about the active and passive obedience of Christ? What's that all about? Well, by active obedience, they mean how he actively fulfilled uh, the law by his perfect obedience, and he did so as our representative. Every jot and tittle, and therefore, Galatians 4, Paul says he was uh, born under the law. Sorry, he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. He fulfilled it all. But then the passive obedience, that speaks of what Christ suffered in the place uh, of sinners on the cross. Remember Philippians 2.8, how he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Or John uh, 10 and verse uh, 18, how uh, he laid down his life, this command I have of the Father. It was out of obedience. So that's the passive obedience. Whether those are right terms to use, I'll let somebody else sort out. But the point is, the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law and all of its demands. The punishment, but also the righteous life. And he did so for us, so that God might now justly, righteously, not charge us with our sins. But rather, that he might justly justify us. That is, he might declare and then forever treat us those believers on Christ as perfectly righteous. Not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of God's working in us, that practical righteousness, no, but based solely on Christ's 
righteousness being imputed, being credited to our account, being declared righteous in Christ's righteousness. That's how it is that we are justified, that we are now treated as righteous by God. Here's the verdict. Justified. It's God who justifies. Here's the verdict. And it is final and unchangeable. And it's not like Proverbs 17:15, where wrongly this guy is wicked, he's pronounced right. No. It's based on what is absolutely true. Because Christ was made sin, that we should be made the righteousness of God in him. He took our sin, our guilt, and gave us his perfect righteousness. Uh, Isaiah uses the picture of being robed in righteous, Christ's righteousness. Well, that's it. And so the question, can anybody find fault with Christ's righteousness? Well, no, absolutely not. It's absolutely perfect. And does that righteousness ever change? Well, no, no. Well, so it is with all of Christ's people before God, unceasingly. It's God who justifies. He's the one who declares them perfectly righteous with an unchanging verdict because it's an unchanging righteousness and it's perfect indeed, notwithstanding our sin. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are Christ. We're justified as if always and only having done that which is right because that's what Christ did as our representative. And therefore, as always and only, now we have God's acceptance and God's favor and forever having all the rewards of perfect righteousness. When it talks about how we will be glorified together with Christ as joint heirs, well, all that is his is ours. Or when Paul talks about there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and not only for me, but those who uh, are looking for his appearing or who love his appearing, well, it's not some you know, wreath or golden thing or whatever you're going to be putting on your head. It means here's the reward that belongs to the righteous. And the righteous judge will give it to me come that day. Oh, because I'm so... No, it's because he is righteous. So to Job's question, how can a man be righteous before God? Well, in and of himself, he can't. None righteous. No, not one. But it's God who justifies. Not by our works. No, no. Again, notice the language. I've referred to it, but now look at it. Romans 4, beginning at verse 4, but it's especially verse 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God justifies those who by nature, by practice, ungodly. And yet, by faith, well, Christ's righteousness imputed. We see the same thing over in Galatians and, and chapter 2. Uh, actually, it seems this is part of the discussion that Paul was having with Peter when he was rebuking him. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified, that is declared and forever treated as righteous by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. We stand before God on our own, and what we've done, not justified, quite the opposite, condemned. Ah, oh, but wait, it's in Christ. 
Again, the language of Philippians 3, 9, uh, to have a righteousness, not my own, based on the law, but that which is through faith, the righteousness which is from God, a gift from God through faith in Christ. Christ's righteousness being given to us. Therefore, believing the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believing on him who is the gospel. Looking to Christ and Christ alone as the author and finisher of our faith. Trusting him personally. These God justifies. He declares and then forever treats as perfectly righteous. Now let me ask you. Are you, are you looking to Christ and Christ alone for your acceptance with God, for that perfect righteousness? We've seen it. Oh, I'm not looking for righteousness, acceptance based on anything I do, my law keeping, Galatians 2, Philippians 3. But it's simply that faith in Christ receiving that righteousness. Are you joined to Christ by faith? That's of God, you're in Christ who's made to us righteousness. If that's not true of you, then you're not righteous in God's sight. No matter how nice, no matter how religious, no matter how much your mama loves you. You're not righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day as a just judge. But good news. Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. Not a lie, but based on what is true. Christ, their Savior, believing on him, not perishing, having everlasting life. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ being saved by him, those who come, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. What about you? If you're not looking to Christ, Christ alone, stop it. Repent of it. Turn now. Look to the Savior and live. But if that is you, you are looking only to Christ. You are joined to him by faith. That's your only plea. Then this is you. It's God who justifies. And being justified by faith, we have peace with God. All that we've seen, you have been declared, you are now forever treated as perfectly righteous. Not by your works, not in your doing, but in Christ's righteousness. It's of God that you're in Christ. Charge him with our sin has given us that we should be made the very righteousness of God in him. Yeah, but wait a minute. I hear what you're saying, but I don't feel like it. This has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with your feelings. This is objective reality. Like a pronouncement being made in a court of law your feelings, sir, do you feel like you're innocent? That has nothing to do with anything. You know, you got this guy, he's been charged with a crime that he didn't commit. Now he's been acquitted. But he might not feel so free. And there might be others there in the courtroom saying, no, no, he's guilty. No. Here's the reality. No matter what others think, no matter how he feels, he's free to go. And so with us, as justified, as declared righteous by God in Christ. What I don't feel doesn't matter. It's God who justifies. 
That's what matters. That's the verdict. It's objective reality. It's in the court of heaven. Therefore, we do have peace with God, being justified by faith, and we have that forever. Yeah, but wait a minute. My sin. Oh, my sin. This justification is not based on our law keeping. It's based entirely on Christ's law keeping, satisfying both the uh, demands for punishment, but also that perfect righteousness lived out. Did he keep the law? Did Jesus keep the law? He could stand in John 8 before his enemies and say, which of you will convict me of sin? His enemies, they were very ready to pass out some lies on him, but now he's the just one who suffered in place of the other. He's the one who knew no sin, who was made sin. And that as our substitute. And therefore we are righteousness, we are righteous in him, in his perfect righteousness. God's verdict is based on this unchanging reality. Does my sin somehow overturn the verdict? A verdict based on unchanging reality and now my sin somehow going to overthrow that? Uh, does it negate Christ's work? Does it somehow diminish his perfect righteousness? No. And so, whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. It's spoken in the past tense as a done deal and the purpose of God. By way of, it is that certain. Christ has made unto us righteousness, but also redemption. That is, that full salvation and glorification at last, not based on our works, whether they're good or bad. All on him, his perfect righteousness credited to our account. Well, does that then mean that sin doesn't really matter? And, and won't that doctrine be abused and cause people to be careless about sin just to live? You know, this is the argument of Romanism. Uh, against the reformers. Oh, that kind of belief, uh, uh, belief that we're made right with God, made righteous in God's sight by faith in Christ. Oh, all kind. Well, let me say it has been. It is abused. Yeah, Jude speaks of this. You've got those who are turning the grace of God into lascivious, lasciviousness or lewdness or basically they're using God's grace as licenses and oh, we can sin all we want to then. Here we are. We're saved by God's grace. And you remember how Paul addressed this in Romans 6. Let's come there. Having shown the consequences, having demonstrated chapters 3, 4, uh, the latter part of chapter 3, on in chapter 4, here also in chapter 5, demonstrated that righteousness comes by faith in Christ and that alone, he having shown the consequences of our justification in Romans 5, he closes that chapter with, so that as sin reigned in death, verse 21, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, here's this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, without trying to go into all that this is communicating, this is written because this glorious truth of our justification by faith is open to this kind of abuse, to this kind of error. Well, if my works don't come to play, then it doesn't matter whether I sin or not. Well, Paul does not answer that by saying, no, 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 you've misunderstood justification. No, we still have to do certain nice things in order to be justified. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's, it's not that much 
grace. It's not that much Christ's righteousness. No, that's not what he says. Instead, he goes on to speak of our union with Christ. You died with him. You were raised. Your own baptism teaches you that. And therefore, as those who died to sin in Christ and are raised, it's for us to walk in newness of life with Christ. And as those who are no longer slaves of sin, well, we're to present our members as slaves to righteousness. But Paul doesn't draw back or doesn't back off in the least from justification by grace through faith. No, no, you misunderstood. I don't mean it's that much Christ. No, it is that much Christ. God justifies the ungodly. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son. Oh, how much more by his life. You know, even when Paul goes on to write in Romans chapter 7, right after Romans 6, here we go, Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7, and the good I would, I don't do, the evil that I would not, that I do, those things I hate, that I do. When I would do good, evil right there present with me, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this bondage to death? Or this body of death, sorry. Then he follows, oh, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. In the reality of his own remaining corruption that he admits and he felt deeply, he says, but that's not the big story. No condemnation. He's still developing the idea of justification. I'm declared right. It's God who justifies. He goes on to say in 8.33, who can condemn? Look what Christ has done. Those called, they're justified. Every one of them. Those justified, every one of them glorified, which means being conformed to the image of God's Son. So then, preacher, are you saying that our sin doesn't really matter? Well, can I say, as to our justification... As to our standing before God as righteous, as to our perfect acceptance, no, our sin doesn't matter. It's Christ and his righteousness. And therefore, our sin cannot unjustify us since our justification is not based on us, not based on our work, our conduct. It's all on Christ. But does that mean... Our sin is not serious? Oh, no. When John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, one to plead our cause with our Father. That shows how serious our sin is. We need an advocate, one to plead our cause. Even as Paul said there in Romans 8, Christ died, rose, ascended, and intercedes for us, pleading our cause, his own blood and righteousness. And though our sin does not unjustify us, as John shows us in 1 John, uh, it, it does affect our walk with God, our relationship, our fellowship with God. Not our acceptance, but our fellowship. And therefore he says, you know, here's the gospel that we should have fellowship with God uh, and his son. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That is with, with God and with each other. But what does that mean? It means having honest dealings with God about our sin. And those who walk in darkness and, and say, I know God. No, they're lying. The truth's not in them. No. But those who walk in the light, doesn't mean they live a perfect life. It means they endeavor to deal honestly with God about their sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's just to forgive. So that even in the case of our sin, well, it doesn't unjustify us. 
It does affect our fellowship with God, but even there, the remedy is close at hand. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses. Walk in the light. Be honest. Confessing sin. He's faithful. He's just. So we get on walking in the light with him because we're justified, because we're righteous with a perfect and unchangeable righteousness. Well, brethren, this is objective reality. A verdict which nothing can overturn or negate. That's justification. Declared and forever treated righteous. I think you have understanding of this. I mean, it's not like, well, I've never heard that before. You do believe these things. But do we really appreciate this? Do we really appreciate what it means as to our acceptance with God, dear brother, dear sister? Who can bring a charge? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Look what Christ, he bore it and pleads his own blood and righteousness. What Paul writes in Romans 8 is actually the application of the doctrine of justification. Here's the outworking. Here's the assurance that we're justified, that we're righteous in Christ, all because of faith in him. And here was Paul's confidence, and it should be ours. It's God who justifies. All my sin, yeah, okay, but it's God who declares me righteous and therefore treats me as righteous. And therefore, I'm persuaded that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Well, is that you? Is that your confidence? Not that, oh, I'm emboldened to sin because, look, it doesn't. No, if that's you, then you don't have a new heart. What reason do you have to say you're in union with Christ? But if you are in Christ through faith, you're declared, forever treated, or justified. Well, then live it, as Paul himself says, as more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not just believing the truth of justification, but believing on him who is our righteousness. Mindful, unchanging. And how should I respond? Well, when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30, it's of God that you are in Christ, who's made to us wisdom, and righteousness, as well as sanctification and redemption. He then says, so as it is written, let him who glory, glory in the Lord. My God grant it to be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see our sin, and oh, we're disgusted with ourselves. We're tempted to ask the question of Job, and how can man be righteous before God? And yet we understand from your word, there is that righteousness that you have provided, even as was foretold in the law and the prophets, and how now we are justified freely by your grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our sins being charged to him, his righteousness being imputed and credited to us, so that we now stand before you in Christ, as the very righteousness of God. Father, help us to appreciate that verdict, not to abuse your grace, but to be melted before you and to love you yet more and more and to live out that whole salvation that has been given us in and by Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.